Welcome to the show. This is Longevity Now, the place for all your news and views about life extension from around the world. This week, we talk to Aubrey de Grey, notable for the SENS strategy to combat aging. Listen in to find out how research is progressing at the SENS Foundation. And now I would like to welcome to the Longevity Podcast, the Chief Science Officer of the SENS Research Foundation and co-founder, Aubrey de Grey. Hello, great to be here again. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, most of the listeners of the podcast are very familiar with the SENS Research Foundation and what is going on with the different strands of SENS, but most people would like to hear a few updates on the types of research you've been doing over the last decade or so. And one of the first that most people became aware of is the search for the enzymes to break down lipofusin. And they were wondering, how has that research progressed? Has it led to any types of treatments? Uh, could you give us an update? Sure, absolutely. So first of all, let me be a little bit more precise about the nature of that strand of sense research. Lipofusin is a term that is both overused and underused in different ways. So I want to be careful to ensure that everyone understands really what we do here. We're interested in that strand of our research in eliminating all types of molecular garbage, molecular waste products that accumulate inside cells. Typically, those waste products accumulate inside a particular part of the cell called the lysosome, though not always. And the reason why people often focus on lipofusin is because lipofusin is a substance that has for a long time been associated with aging itself as opposed to being associated with any particular disease of old age. And as I'm sure you and many of the people at Logesity are aware, I think that the distinction between aging itself and the diseases of old age is not only a biologically inaccurate and incorrect distinction, but a very counterproductive one that tends to mislead people with regard to what kinds of analysis, what kinds of interventions are actually going to work. So I'm always rather careful about this. Now, the lipofusin in, in its standard um, usage is a very heterogeneous substance, mostly consisting of proteins coming from mitochondria, and it tends to accumulate in cells like cardiomyocytes in the heart and in neurons. There's also a substance which is often called lipofusin that accumulates in the back of the retina, in the back of the eye, and it's the major driver of macular degeneration in the elderly. But it's actually a completely different substance. It's hardly got any protein in it. It's almost entirely made of lipid. And it is only called lipofusin, really, because it happens to fluoresce in roughly the same color that regular lipofusin does. So that's an example of a really poor misuse of the term. Additionally to that, we're interested in eliminating molecular waste products that are not fluorescent at all and are never called lipofusin, but our approach to eliminating them is exactly the same. So an example there would be the oxidized cholesterol that accumulates in macrophages in the artery wall and, and turns into sclerotic plaque. Yes. And in fact, our emphasis over the past several years has been on only two specific types of molecular waste products. Number one, oxidized cholesterol that I just mentioned, and number two, this Thing that's often called lipofusin but isn't in the back of the eye. We don't look at lipofusin per se because we think that because it's so heterogeneous, it's 
basically something that we should probably not start with. We should get there once we've kind of found our feet with regard to more simple molecularly characterized substances. And the more simple metabolic byproducts, the indigestible byproducts that you're speaking of then, are more easily targeted, more easily researched, more effective right. use of uh, your time and money. That's what we think, yes. We think that we're likely to make better progress at, on, in phase one, so to speak, at the beginning of this process on those things that are easier to research. And then we'll move on to things that are more heterogeneous. All right, so what's happened? Well, the big success story that we've had in this area has been with regard to oxidized cholesterol. We've been focusing on a particular variant of oxidized cholesterol called 7-keto cholesterol. The reason we focused on that one is because people tend to agree that it is public enemy number one in terms of how abundant it is relative to other oxidized cholesterol derivatives and also how toxic it is. So that's, that's a good, good rationale. And our approach is, first of all, to identify bacteria that are able to break down 7-keto cholesterol. Second step, to identify how they do it, the genes and enzymes that they use. And third step, to modify those genes so that we can put them into human cells, initially, of course, only in cell culture, modified in such a way that they still work, even though, obviously, a human cell is very different from a bacterial cell. And it didn't take us long, maybe only a year or two, starting from when we began this work in 2005, 2006, to do step one, identifying the right bacteria. It also didn't take us very long to do step two, to identify the genes. Step three, we always knew was going to be much harder, tinkering with the genes to make them uh, do their thing in a human cell. But a couple of years ago, we were able to publish a very landmark paper showing that we had succeeded in that. That came out in 2000, I suppose, at the end of 2012. And it showed basically that we could protect human cells from concentrations of 7-keto cholesterol in the medium in cell culture that were otherwise lethal to the cell, which is very nice. The question, of course, then is what's the next step? And, of course, the next step is to get it working uh, in other different types of cell, especially in the type of cell that matters in the body, which is the macrophage, and then to move to mouse models of atherosclerosis and so on. And to be honest, we were rather disappointed by the fact that our progress stalled rather at that point. But the reason it stalled was fundamentally that we didn't have enough money. We were only able to allocate funds for one very good postdoctoral fellow at Rice University in Houston, and he just, you know, wasn't able to make rapid enough progress. But then some really good thing, news happened, which was that one of our major donors, Jason Hope, an IT entrepreneur from Arizona, who has been paying close attention to all of our work ever since he started donating back in 2010, he decided that this project was indeed suffering from lack of funds and that it had reached a sufficient proof of concept that he was willing to actually take it private. So he created a company, you know, gave us 10% of that company, hired a postdoc from Rice and threw in a couple more people and actually was able to do a deal with Rice so that the guy was able to carry on working in the same lab, which is really good because it means access to a lot of very expensive equipment that might have been difficult otherwise. And expertise. So yeah, so that project is now continuing and it, it's probably moving rather faster. But the best of it is, of course, that this is something that we can trumpet as a great tech transfer result for us. We've always said throughout our existence that our ultimate goal is to kickstart the creation of a rejuvenation biotechnology industry with the emphasis on the word industry. We know ultimately the private sector has a critical role to play in due course. 
And the reason why we set Sense Research Foundation up as a charity in the first place was simply because so much of this work was at such an early stage that it was difficult to get investors interested. So we're pretty happy about it. Well, that certainly is good news. How about the, the uh, macular degeneration angle? Yeah, I was about to get onto that. Okay. So, that project didn't do so well in our hands. We had a uh, we have that big in house actually here at our research centre in Mountain View, and I don't know, really know what was it was really just a case of you know luck really you know it just didn't go so well for a variety of reasons. But then we kind of did the same thing as with the cholesterol project. What happened in this case was that Kelsey Moody. A, um, a major force within Sense Research Foundation ever since 2008 when he actually started the original version of our education initiative. He's worked for us during two periods over the years and also worked at Immune Path with Don Schlerndon and some of our other luminaries. He now has a company of his own in upstate New York named ICOR, which is mostly focused on hematopoietic stem cells, but it does other things as well, and he decided he wanted to get his feet wet in this area. So, again, we basically, in this case, just basically shipped him a bunch of reagents and equipment and, and intellectual know-how, and he is now pursuing that. Um, this is actually much rather more recent, and I have no news as to what's actually arising from that, but certainly he's got good ideas and uh, he's got good people, so I have high hopes that that will also move forward. That brings me to another type of, say, junk that Sense has targeted in the past, extracellular crosslinks like glucosapan. I read some news recently that it was synthetically created in a lab. Is that correct? Is that something that you had a hand in or something you're following, that type of research? Oh, yes. So glucosapan has been um, known about for about 20 years. And for at least 10 years, people have been in general agreement that it is the number one age-related crosslink in terms of abundance. So these crosslinks form through, throughout life as a side effect of the transport of sugar around the body in the bloodstream. Crosslinks form as a result of a very complicated sequence of chemical reactions involving the proteins, the amino acids that, that pose this lattice of proteins called the extracellular matrix. And the reason they matter is because they reduce the elasticity of the extracellular matrix. They make it stiffer. Uh, that causes a bunch of cosmetic things like wrinkles. It also causes presbyopia, the inability to see so the things close up when you get older. But the main life-threatening consequence of this process is hypertension. It causes the major arteries to become stiff, and that has knock-on consequences in terms of damage to the capillaries and all the you know aspects of hypertension like kidney failure that we're familiar with. And the thing is, glucosapain has turned out to be very, very hard to work with, so much so that basically everybody in the field has given up working on it because they want to get papers published and they really you know, would prefer to do things that, where they can succeed. But as you all know, that's not the way the Sense Research Foundation thinks about things. We work on the things that need to be worked on, whether or not they're hard. And sure enough, it's paid off. A few years ago, we came across an absolutely brilliant organic chemist at Yale named David Spiegel, who not only is brilliant himself, but also had a brilliant team. And with his collab, well, we basically funded him to work on this. The first step that needed to be performed was to find a way of synthesizing glucosapain in the lab. 
starting from cheap, small chemicals. The reason you have to do that is because the only other way to isolate glucosapane is to take old tissue and basically dissolve it in a very elaborate, complicated way. And then you get teeny tiny amounts of this stuff out of that. And, you know, it's just impossible to work with. It's far too laborious to be practical. What you need is a way of synthesizing it from inorganic reagents, basically. And um, once you can do that and make a lot of it cheaply, you've got the ability to do all manner of important things that are essential for figuring out how to break it down. Um, you, can, you can write antibodies to it, for example. You can even do the same kind of thing that we've done with oxidized cholesterol. You can identify bacteria that can break it down and then find the enzymes that they use and work from there. So all of these things were completely un impossible to do until we could synthesize the stuff. And the massive breakthrough is that they did it. They actually succeeded. The actual success was probably a year ago now, actually, but of course, it takes a long time to get published. Um, uh, but yeah, they succeeded in doing that. And the bonus for us was that the method, the very creative method that they developed in order to do this, turns out to be quite versatile. It turns out to be a way of synthesizing a number of other important chemicals that oh. don't have anything. Um, the result of that was that it was of sufficient general interest that it was accepted as a publication in Science Magazine, which is the first time we've managed that, um, you know, getting something to the most important science publication in the world. So it's an extremely valuable thing in terms of our credibility and prestige, just having and being able to get papers out in journals like that. It's very handy. Okay. Now, we talked about a couple of the uh, areas that you're working on, some of the... Uh damage that accumulates for your aging. Now, uh, talking about the original seven types of damage uh, that you proposed uh, back in the last decade, what one do you think will have the first working therapy? Or what, what is your estimate when we might see it? Well, of course, since SANS is a divide and conquer approach where we are developing all these different therapies for different types of damage, one has to give us a rather complicated answer to that question. Certainly some of the therapies that are going to be necessary are already in clinical trials. Things like the elimination of amyloid from the brain using antibodies, which basically works now. We can do that. It doesn't have much effect on its own, or at least not in most Alzheimer's patients in terms of cognitive recovery, simply because there are other things that also go wrong in Alzheimer's that we can't yet fix. But it's something that we now have in our pocket and it's basically done. Similarly, a variety of stem cell therapies are in clinical trials. I'm really excited at the moment about the situation with Parkinson's disease, um, for which stem cell therapy is kind of the obvious holy grail because everyone's known for a long time that Parkinson's disease is driven by the loss of a particular type of brain cell in a particular part of the brain. But when it was tried 20 years ago, they couldn't get it to work, basically because they couldn't reliably manipulate the neuronal stem cells before transplantation into a form that would actually differentiate into the correct type of neuron. So basically only a couple of patients actually benefited 20 years ago, but they've benefited so much that we know that once we can get this right, it's going to be, it's going to be a real cure for Parkinson's disease. And now that people are much better at you know, precisely manipulating stem cells in vitro before transplantation, uh, new clinical trials are underway, and people are very optimistic. I'm extremely optimistic that we can really be talking about something as little as 10 years from now. 
Of course, many of the other therapies also need to be developed in order to actually postpone the health of old age entirely or at a much earlier stage. Things I talk, spoke about with regard to oxidized cholesterol and macular degeneration, those things, you know, might be 15 years away if we're lucky, you know, in terms of getting all the way through to making them work reliably in humans. Yeah, that brings me up to another uh, listener question about uh, an interview that you did earlier this year, speaking about time frames. And this was, uh, I believe, on Motherboard. People can probably search your name and uh, Motherboard and find that article where you mentioned that perhaps robust mouse rejuvenation was only about six to eight years away, which seems like very optimistic projection, a little bit better than what uh, people had read before, say 10 years away. Is there any reason why you thought that perhaps uh, things have accelerated? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, the 10-year uh, the projection was something that I was saying 10 years ago. I'm not feeling too bad about that prediction because, you know, it was always stated as being subject to funding. So I think, you know, we have actually gone roughly as rapidly as I would have expected us to go, given the funding that has actually in practice been available over those 10 years. Namely, we've made about one third about of the progress that I would have hoped to make. So we've brought the 10 years down to, let's say, seven years plus or minus. So yeah, things are going pretty much according to plan, in, except insofar as we're not getting enough money in the door. And, you know, if we did have, um, a lot of money dropped on us tomorrow, then I think six to eight years is a pretty good prediction. I certainly think that if we don't have a bunch of money dropped on us tomorrow, then 15 years, which is not good. Okay, and then how about, since we're talking about funding, and you mentioned partnering up with technology startups, uh, like the one in Arizona, could you comment on the SENS Research Foundation strategy of leveraging philanthropy to get more bang for the buck? For example, uh, you've been running the rejuvenation conferences for several years now to build relationships with the research community and university researchers. Has that worked out quite well? Of course, you know, it's always glass half full, glass half empty, isn't it? I mean, I, I guess I'm pretty happy with what we've achieved, but at the same time, I know perfectly well that we haven't achieved enough because still money is very much the rate limiting fa factor in all of this. So, you know, we continue to plug away. We continue to put a lot of our effort into outreach and education and um, fundraising of one kind or another. I still do every, I still live this completely insane, brutal life in terms of traveling and giving talks all over the world. So, you know, nothing's really changed in that regard. But we do see progress all the time. We do see more and more people in the private sector getting involved. Obviously, everyone knows about Calico and Human Yes, yes. A, uh, a listener did have a question about Calico on this same subject. They're just a few miles away from you, and they've got a billion dollars. Is there any hope that the SENS Foundation is going to be working with them uh, more closely in the future? At the moment, it's looking pretty distant. Essentially, it's... The unfortunate fact is that the way that Calico has been set up is in one sense really good, but in another sense not so good. The good thing is that they have essentially bifurcated their operation into short-term stuff and longer-term stuff. The short-term stuff is what you hear about in all the press releases about you know the huge deals with Big Pharma. These are to develop specific drugs that might modestly postpone um, you know, certain specific age-related diseases. Essentially, it's just doing Genentech all over again, which is, of course, what the people at the top of Calico have done in the past. 
And that's fine. It's a very good thing because it means that the long-term stuff that Calico are also doing is insulated from any you know, shareholder pressure to actually make money every quarter. So that's great. The bad news is that the long-term stuff is currently leaning, as far as we can tell. Obviously, we can only tell from you know, tea leaves, like you know, who they hire. It's currently leaning towards an overly discovery-driven, you know, discovery-centric, um, you know, curiosity-driven bent. Uh, in other words, not so much using the, what we already know to develop new therapies, but rather trying to find out more, trying to do more and more basic science. It's kind of rather the way that the Ellison Medical Foundation went before they decided to throw in the towel. And this is a bit of a shame. It's, it's kind of not surprising because they decided to appoint as their chief science officer a guy named David Botstein, an emeritus professor from um, Princeton, who's extremely bright, but he, well, perhaps the biggest thing to say is that he's on record as saying that he doesn't have a translational bone in his body. So it's a little bit disconcerting. But we shall see. You know, at the moment, we've done our very best to gain links to Calico, and they've more or less blown us off. But we certainly have plenty of links to people who have links with Calico. So um, there's hope. There's, there's some hope. Speaking of disappointments, like the Ellison Foundation, which really didn't focus all that much on translational uh, research and Calico as well. What about the National Institutes of Health? Uh, a lot of longevity podcast listeners were... Uh, disappointed about some cuts in that budget recently, and they were wondering if it was worth it to try and bring the topic more into focus, research on aging, funding for aging research uh, during the presidential campaign. So far, debates have happened, and the topic isn't even mentioned. Is it worth it for people who are advocates to try and get this into the public sphere, or should they focus on other avenues for outreach and fundraising? It's a great question. I honestly don't know. You know, I definitely don't consider myself a political animal at all. I do not know whether there would be benefits in this, but I can't see it doing any harm. I think the more that politicians can be embarrassed into understanding that they might be missing a very important vote in this area, the better. Absolutely. However, as things stand, things, you know, it doesn't look very good in terms of the political dynamics. Many of you guys at Longevity may know that there is this thing called the Geroscience Interest Group within the NIH, which was set up a few years ago by the guy who runs the, the, the Division of Aging Biology at the NIA. In other words, the guy who oversees the disbursement of funds to gerontology researchers. His idea, which is brilliant, was that maybe we can start to break down the silos between aging itself on the one hand and the um, diseases of old age on the other hand by creating requests for applications, initiatives within, funding initiatives within the NIH that are joint between the National Institute on Aging and other institutes. Because, of course, the most high-budget other institutes are ones that are focused predominantly on diseases of aging, like cancer and diabetes and heart disease and so on. So this is a fantastic idea. But, lo and behold, it has pretty much run into the sand, as far as I can see. It's remained very much an interest group and hardly anything more, despite the fact that Francis Collins, the guy who runs the NIH, the whole NIH, um, is very much in favor and has lent his verbal support to it. 
And you can see why it's, got, it's gone, grown into the sand. It's obvious politics. There is no extra money being talked about here, which means that any money that might go to these new initiatives would have to come out of something else. And the people who would financially suffer are not keen on that. And it's always easy to, you know, to lobby in favor of the status quo. And even though Francis Hans is in favor of it, he's not willing to go up to the, you know, to the, to the Department of Health and Social Services and say, you know, um, we'd like more money because he doesn't think he would win that political battle. And the reason he doesn't think he would win, of course, is because aging is still a controversial topic within society, within the U.S. and elsewhere. That's right. That brings me to another question a listener had about kind of the philosophical aspect of your research of longevity advocacy and wondering about, you know, defining aging as a disease or solely focusing on the diseases of aging. And this particular person thought, well, focusing just on the diseases of aging kind of trivializes the entire effort that it takes a new thought process, a new meme, if you would say, to really get more people on board. Do you think that's the case or not? I think it's more or less the case, yes. I think that if we were only to talk about the specific you know, familiar diseases of old age, then we would be shooting ourselves in the foot in a very important way. Namely, people would say, well, yeah, well, we've already got the American Heart Association and the American Cancer Society and all these other um, august bodies that direct, and, and of course the institutes of the NIH and so on, that direct money to world-leading researchers to look at these specific diseases. Why do we need any new idea? And so it is important to have the new idea. And then if the new idea is, you know, described using the word aging, then you have, of course, the different problem of having to get people to understand that aging is bad for you and that it's not some kind, and that it's potentially amenable to medical intervention rather than being some kind of, you know, inevitable, natural, fundamental law of nature that it's going to happen, um, which is the way that people tend to think of it. That's really why in the past year or two, I've spent so much of the introductions of the talks that I gave emphasizing the complete biological illegitimacy of making any kind of distinction between aging itself and the diseases of old age, and indeed the um, tragic consequences of that mistake, namely the emphasis on putting all the money into geriatric medicine rather than into preventative geriatrics, which is basically what SANS is. Sure. Yeah, so, I mean, getting this across to people is very hard. Uh, you have to have a new idea, and you have to kind of explain to people why it's a new idea, that it's okay that they didn't have it before, you know, make them not feel too stupid. Sure. And as, as far as funding goes, almost every researcher I talk to, I ask, you know, what's the number one thing you could use in order to accelerate research and get things done? And, of course, it's funding. I wonder if you could speak about the year-end Fight Aging fundraiser for SENS. Yeah, sure. So Reason, who of course was one of the original founders of Immunist, as it was back then, yes. um, is, remains an extraordinarily powerful and vocal and useful supporter of what we do. His Fight Aging blog is a fantastic resource that's very widely read. And he has also, over the past few years, um, got into the habit of running a fourth quarter campaign for fundraising for Sense. And that campaign is generally done as a matching campaign where 
a small number of relatively wealthy donors come in and uh, pitch in maybe um, $10,000 or 20, adding up to a fund which then smaller donors are invited to match over the last three months of the year. Um, this year, we're aiming to do it on a slightly larger scale than we have in previous years. The uh, large donors who were amassed were able to put together a total of $125,000. And so we're trying to get that same amount from other donors. So At that moment, will be matched. The small donations come in and adds up to 125000 Then the fight aging matching will bring it up to a quarter million? That's exactly right. Okay. Now, what a million is, you know, it's still only um, about one twentieth of our total budget, but that's still not trivial. That's still like an, uh, that funds one of our projects, basically. So that's a lot of money that's very useful to us. Is there any other way besides, say, contributing to the Fight Aging Matching Fundraiser, uh, other uh, types of funding avenues that people could help out the SENS Research Foundation with? Well, sure, of course. I mean, every dollar is useful, irrespective of how it comes in. Um, on Tuesday, Giving Tuesday, um, on the um, 1st of December, we have a, a matching campaign level of $5,000 where actually I'm putting in $5,000 and somebody else is putting in $5,000. I think no, two other people are putting in $5,000. So that basically means that if we get $5,000 that day, then we will have a total of $20,000 come into the foundation. But yeah, I mean, these things are happening all the time. The, uh, yeah, all money is green, so to speak. <laughs> and the, the, the campaign this year is going well, so we're only up to uh, the 11th of November right now. I think as of last weekend, we had just tipped over 50%. We had just reached, I think, 63,000 out of the 125. So we're on track to make it. Yeah, that's but, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, lastly, is there anything uh, you'd like to promote uh, that people could watch out for? as far as SENS research progress goes, or maybe an appearance uh, that you'll be making somewhere soon? Uh, anything you'd like to promote? Sure, yeah. Well, so our website is pretty informative these days in that regard. We have a constantly updated news feed, you know, in terms of talking about the, the, the latest progress we make. We also talk about progress that other people are making. We have a monthly newsletter that discusses uh, things like this, discusses everything that's going on in the field that we think is relevant. There is an events calendar as well, which talks about places that I'm going to be appearing and, and places that any of the rest of Sense Research Foundation are going to be appearing, for that matter. So yes, I mean, that's the place to look. Go to sense.org and you'll find out everything you want to know. And of course, sign up for the newsletter and you'll receive those updates automatically. Well, Aubrey, thank you very much for appearing on Longevity Now. Well, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. I can't say it enough. If you want to see more progress toward reversing aging, set aside a little money every year and donate to organizations like SENS. Until next time, I'm Justin Lowe.